that would lead us into the table. Uh, doubling my challenge is it's the first Sunday of the year, so it's been my practice and my desire usually to offer something that would be a, a challenge for the year and to double those things up today. You'll be the judge whether I accomplished either, much less both, uh, by the time we're done here this morning. Uh, but the passage that I want for us to consider this morning is in Galatians chapter 6, verses 14 through 16, focusing primarily on verse 14. Hear the word of our Lord. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel, the people of our God the word of our Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come into this new year, as we come before your glorious presence, as we come and prepare to come to this gracious table, we pray that you would prepare our hearts by opening our ears and our minds as well as our hearts, that we would hear your word, that it would not only instruct, but that it would shape us that we would see something of your heart. We would see and be reminded of what you have done to demonstrate your love for us. And having been loved, may we also now be freed to love, not only you, but one another. Our desire, Lord, is to walk with you, to have fellowship with you, and to become more like you. We commit ourselves at this time to studying your word, one of the means by which this happens. And yet we pray to you, for only by your Spirit can fruit truly be born. And so, Lord, we pray that you would be at work within us now as we consider your word. To the honor and to the glory of your name, we pray in Christ. Amen. I think I am probably one of the few Americans who has never bid on anything on eBay, ever. In fact, I've never even been to the website. I don't know how many people that are like me uh, in that way, but uh, I am one, and I plan on keeping that so resolution, continue through 2022. Uh, and, and so I am no expert when it comes to uh, bidding, and particularly when it comes to uh, online auctions. But I am amazed from what I read uh, by the things that people are willing to pay for. And I'm doubly amazed when I consider and hear what people pay for things. There was an article that came out, it's been a couple of years, but I only read it uh, relatively recently, uh, that said eBay uh, 20, uh, so it was the 20th anniversary, I think it's five years ago, uh, the 20 weirdest things that people have bid for on eBay, and they make you scratch your head. For instance, one of the things that sold in 2008 was a cornflake shaped like the state of Illinois. Now, as the writer of the article pointed out, the fact that somebody would actually pay for this is, is, is sort of baffling. But then think about the people who actually found it. Was it their practice to look at all of their cereal and see if there were things that looked like things? How many boxes did they have to go through before they found something that was worthy of putting up on eBay? I mean, just very 
you know, penetrating questions. Uh, but it paid off for them in this case because they put this cornflake up on eBay and sold it for $1,350. Someone actually paid $14,000 in 2004 for Britney Spears' leftover chewing gum. Now, I don't know if that meant half chewed or just what was left in the pack, and she, you know, she was rich enough to go into a new pack, but $14,000 for gum, new, chewed, whatever, just seems a little bit extreme to me. Somebody had actually bought um, Justin Timberlake's half-eaten French toast. I guess the waitress took it. He was done with it. Put it up on eBay, and somebody bought it for $1,025. Half-eaten French toast. And continuing with the theme of weird foods, there was a restaurant owner who sold a grilled cheese sandwich with the face of the Virgin Mary on it. In fact, the story is even more bizarre because he had made this grilled cheese sandwich at one time for somebody who had placed an order, recognized the picture, at least so in his mind, that looked like the Virgin Mary, quickly saved that, made another sandwich for that person, saved this grilled cheese sandwich for 10 years, had it framed, had it hanging in his restaurant before he chose to sell the grilled cheese sandwich, 10-year-old grilled cheese sandwich, for $28,000. Moving away from food, because apparently eBay does sell more than that, there was somebody in England who sold a ghost in a jar for $50,922. Or at least that was what the bid was uh, from people in England. And the article did mention, though, that the buyer never paid up. So I don't know if he came to a census. My guess is somebody was drinking before they made the bid but the ghost in the jar was, uh, went, uh, went into uh, default. And then perhaps the strangest of all to me is this, or, or maybe it's the, the best way of, of raising funds, but there was a, a bag of air from a Kanye West concert sold for $65,000. So somebody apparently was at the concert, I don't know how you validate this, but somebody was at the, you know, had a little baggie, opened the baggie, you know, somehow got the air, closed the thing up, put it on eBay, sold it for $65,000. You figure the tickets cost 100 bucks. That was quite the, uh, quite the investment somebody made. And I'm amazed by the fact that somebody would even think of selling these things. I'm amazed all the more that somebody would buy these things. People seem to buy almost anything. Uh, but as uh, you know, many people have said over time, what somebody is willing to pay for something is the expression of what they value. Again, you can question these people wondering why would they value these things. But clearly, these are things that somebody valued, bizarre as they may be. Well, in our passage, the Apostle Paul reveals something of an odd object that he values. It's evident through all of his writings, but in, in particular, we, we see his value of it uh, in, in the passage we looked at this morning. And, and that value is the cross. Paul says, far be it from me to boast in anything other than the cross of Jesus. And you think about that kind of a statement. The Apostle Paul, who was very well educated, had risen to success more than other people of his age, even though he uh, uh, and, um, was regarded very highly among the Pharisees and the Sadducees through his life, uh, even at a relatively young age. He was put in charge of many things. Then he'd become a tremendous missionary, although letter of Galatians, one of his first letters, so therefore he hadn't really accomplishes much on mission yet, as if he would have for one of his later letters. 
Uh, but with all the things that were true of his life, and he's saying, far be it from me to boast in anything other than the cross of Jesus Christ. I mean, we see some of his, his attitude towards other accomplishments in his life as he writes to the Philippians. He says, I consider everything else I have, everything else I've accomplished, I just consider all of that rubbish as compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ. That's the relationship. And, and many people might identify with that. You know, you might have uh, decided that you are not going to put yourself fully into a career or pursue different patterns in order that you would marry and live with uh, the spouse that you have. And that was an exchange that you were gladly make. You know, whatever amount of money you might have made is nothing as compared to the relationship that you have uh, with, with the one you love. We can understand that. Uh, that somebody would have that kind of a affection. But Paul here is saying something related and yet just, uh, uh, clearly distinct. He values Jesus Christ not just for the relationship, but his value is on the cross. He doesn't even want to boast anything. There's nothing that he values more than Christ and him crucified. And here he is boasting in the cross of Jesus Christ. And that may not be so startling to us because we have sentimentalized the cross in many, many ways. The cross is jewelry. The cross is, is something that hangs in a decorative way in our home. Uh, the cross is something that decorates many sanctuaries and churches and adorns rooftops. And it's not wrong that we have the value for it. But sometimes the cross has become so familiar, we don't really see, we don't remember what an odd thing this is to cherish. John Piper puts it this way, in a sense it's like exulting over the electric chair or a gas chamber, a lethal injection or a lynching rope. No manner of execution that has ever been devised was more cruel and agonizing than to be nailed to a cross and hung up to die like a piece of meat. Bible scholar F.F. F. Bruce says it this way, the word crux was unmentionable, crux, uh, Latin for, for cross. The word crux was unmentionable in polite Roman society. Even when someone was being condemned to death by crucifixion, the sentence used was an archaic formula, hang him on the unlucky tree, was what the saying, that would be the sentence that would be passed down. It just was... An uh, undignified word to, to talk about a cross in polite Roman society. And here Paul is saying, I'm not going to boast in anything except for the cross. Far be it for me to boast in anything except for the cross. Paul sees a value in that cross despite the ugliness that the cross actually represents. Another New Testament scholar, Leon Morris, perhaps gives us a clue why in the Paul's value, Paul would value the cross. He says this, Paul not only used the unmentionable word, he gloried in it. He saw with clarity that the central truth of Christianity is that the, that the Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross for the salvation of sinners. And when that great truth is grasped, all else pales into insignificance before it. And what he's reminding us here is that if, if we see the cross, if we see in the cross what the Apostle Paul sees, we too will see a beauty where everyone else sees only gruesome ugliness. 
Because when we look to the cross, understanding its connection to Christ and Christ having been connected to the cross, we will see how much Jesus paid for our redemption, which is an evidence of how much Jesus values those who are his. The evidence of value is what somebody is willing to pay for it. The late James Montgomery Boyce, I think he sums up this passage in a a very um, complete way. He says, Paul says, it's inconceivable that he could boast in anything but the cross. It's striking how much the gospel was involved in this statement. First, the cross speaks of the atonement necessitated by man's sin. Second, the full name of the Savior used indicates the significance of his person and the role he played in our redemption. And third, the pronoun our speaks of the personal aspects of Christ's redemption, for it is ours through our response of faith. And so to help us understand, I think taking Boyce's three points here, we, we want to focus not just on the cross and, and recognize that it has value and, and, and celebrate the cross, but what I want us to do is to take a moment as we prepare to come to this table And as we prepare to launch into a new year, to be reminded of the great significance, to be rerooted in this gruesomeness that then becomes beautiful for those who understand. First, we need to recognize it was necessitated by our sin. It was George Orwell who said, sometimes the first duty of an intelligent man is is the restatement of the obvious. And here's the obvious statement that also is recorded for us in Scripture. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are sinners. Along with that, that is not quite as obvious, at least uh, that is not necessarily evident without God reminding us this and telling us the price of that, but the wages of sin is death. We all have sinned. We all, therefore, are sinners. We all, therefore, deserve death. That is our nature. We were born into it, and then we live it out and expand that reality every day of our lives. The problem, though, is that culturally, we no longer have sinners. We have victims. We have the oppressed. We have those who are dysfunctional. We have those who have disorders. But we no longer have sinners in our culture. And perhaps even more troubling is that many Christians are are buying into that. And I'm not in any way minimizing that. We do have those who are oppressed, and that is unjust, and God is concerned. We do have victims, and those who belong to God should be the champion of the oppressed and who are the victims. We have a lot of dysfunction. We have a lot of brokenness. We are looking forward to Christ restoring But in all of those categories, we seem to be moving away from our own personal ownership. And Christians are being shaped by the culture. Even Christians struggle with this idea that we are sinners. And if we don't recognize our own sin, we don't recognize that we are sinners, and we don't recognize the wage of sin, what God thinks of sin and and, and the price for that, Well, then the cross is not only ugly, it's foolishness. But we know 
there is sin. And as Christians, we ought to be the ones who are more keenly aware of it than anyone else. It is true, and certainly it is our hope, that when somebody becomes a Christian, that the external sins begin to die. In other words, you recognize what sin is, you begin to form your life and follow the patterns of what God has called us to live. You are empowered to die to that sin and to live for the righteousness of the way that God has called it to. But see, here's the issue that Christians have that the non-Christians don't. Non-Christians can only look at the surface behavior and then determine whether or not what they are doing and what they are valuing fits in conformity with the prevailing values of a particular culture. Christians are able to have the word of God that tells you the way that we were designed to live, the way that God designed to live, the, the character of God himself. And not only can we now look at the external sins, things that we do or things that we uh, have done and recognize that many of them fall into this category of sin, but we are called to go even deeper and look at the sin beneath the sin. In other words, when we see things that we have done that are out of line with what God has called us to do, we don't just say, well, I'm going to stop doing that. But as Christians, we're called to go even deeper and to say, why did I do that? What is the value that led me to behave in this way that is contrary to the will of God? And then we are called to go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper until we finally hit the root. And what it is, it's driving us to act in a way that is contrary to the ways of God. And so in that sense, as Christians, somebody who's lived for a long time, ideally will live a life that looks a whole lot more polished than the general person in the population. But those who are truly seeking after Christ will find that they have more sin within them than they ever dared imagine. In fact, it would be overwhelming and discouraging to even consider apart from the reality of the cross. But the Christian is one who is well aware of his or her sin and is not simply trying to escape having the label of sinner, but one who is embracing that reality and even digging deeper. So that as Martin Luther kind of alluded to at one time, when somebody comes to you and points out a particular sin, you are in sin, the response of the genuine Christian ought to be, you don't know the half of it. We own that reality of our sin. And so as we begin this new year, I want to offer this challenge to you. Embrace your sin. I want you to hear what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. I'm saying embrace your sin, not go and sin. Embrace what you are. You don't need to go do something. You've got plenty already. But as Martin Luther had said very succinctly and, and very memorably, sin big, but let your faith be bigger. It's not an invitation to misbehave. It's an invitation to look within and then to look to God and what he has given to us in the person of Jesus Christ. So the cross was necessitated by our sin, but as Boyce then says, the whole name signifies the importance of Christ. And, and so what Paul says in, in this passage in verse 14, far be it from me to boast in, in the cross, uh, except for in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not just in Jesus, the person, the one that people look at and say, what a great teacher, what a great example, what a great role model. The fact that he was listed as also our Christ, the Christ signifies something. It's not a last name. It indicates that he was the promised Messiah. He was the one who was going to pay the debt to free his people. And he was going to do that, even though many misunderstood it. He was going to do that not by coming in and ushering just a new kingdom through an army or a rebellion or setting things straight or even by popular vote. People wanted to do that. After he had fed the multitudes, they wanted to make him king. And he said, ah, it's not time to do that. And the passage actually says they wanted to make him king by force. 
I mean, they were getting agitated. They were getting angry. They were going to make him be the ruler and the king. Except Jesus understood this. No cross, no crown. In other words, he would never be the king that we wanted. He was only willing to be the king that God the Father wanted him to be. And he ushers in the new kingdom, not by conquering, but by conquering death and then calling us to follow him. And so the fact that it's not just Jesus, an example and one who died, but he died for a purpose. He died in our place. He was our substitute and atonement. And, and, but it also calls us our Lord, Jesus Christ, which indicates that those who belong to him follow his way. We recognize him as the supreme overall. What he values, we are to value. What he directs, we are to do. And we see that our nature, that the cross reminds us of, but the cross also reminds us of all of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And finally, as Boyce points out, the word our is a personal response. It's actually two things. It's a personal response, but it's also a corporate. Our is not just an individual. It's a reminder that we belong to a people that God has redeemed. But at the same time, the word our, our indicates something we possess. It belongs to us. And the benefits belong only to those who have received Jesus as he is presented to us in the gospel. And so as we look to the cross, we see its ugliness. We see the glory of God. And through the lens of the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ, we see its beauty, a beauty that is ours. The church in Greenwich, Connecticut, the old Greenwich church. And in that church stands a, a very bulky wooden 10-foot cross. And unlike most churches where the cross adorns the wall or the front of the church or, or the rooftop, uh, this one is bolted down into the concrete floor in front of the platform, not three feet from where the minister stands and where the minister preaches. There's nothing about that cross that they have that is pretty. It's not you know, set up like a Celtic cross with a circle where you can see the shining face of the minister, um, kind of in a, in a circle like you're looking at him on a TV screen. It is old, unpolished, unfinished wood. And one author who talked about this cross says that if you go and look at it closely, you recognize it's untreated, and the first word that comes to your mind is splinters if you touch it. This cross is set in front of the platform. The author goes on and he says, the positioning defies reason and art and convention. No architect in his right mind would have designed such a placement. It's an obstruction. The preacher's words have to pass right through it. He has to step around it, uh, from around it in order for the congregation to see him. And the congregation always has it in its obstructive view. But here's the message that this church wants to send. This church wants the cross to get in our way. This cross, this church wants it to be front and center of everything that they do. They want the cross to intrude in their lives. 
this is a particular importance because as another Bible scholar, and loaded in quotes this morning, but D.A. Carson says this, I fear the cross without ever being disowned is constantly in danger of being dismissed from its central place. By, from the central place it must enjoy by relatively peripheral insights that take on far too much weight. Whenever the periphery is in danger of replacing the center, we are not far removed from idolatry. And I think he's right. This is not a matter of people that are rejecting the message of the scriptures. This is not a matter of people who are trying to be unfaithful or have a low value of scripture or a low value of the salvation that is ours. But the message of the cross, the cross itself, is easily displaced Moved to the side, just assumed, a convenient piece of decoration rather than front and center and intruding in our lives. And the challenge for you and the challenge for me in 2022 is this. Let's be a people who keep the cross in the center of our lives. Let's be a people who are offended by the cross over and over again because the cross declares to us a message that sometimes we don't want to hear. It is inconvenient. It messes with what seems to be our fun or our rightful position. Let's be a people who are constantly viewing the cross in both its ugliness and its beauty. Let's be a people who not only are conscious of the cross, but are people who are being shaped by the cross. Because the Apostle Paul says in this passage, not just that there's a theological significance attached to this symbol, but he says this, far be it from me to boast, in, in the, boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In other words, the cross is not just a theological message, but there's something that is actually happening. that we are dying to worldliness, that we are being crucified in a sense, that that which is contrary to the way of God is constantly being put to death. And the temptations, the values of the culture are losing their appeal because of the power and because of the beauty of the message of the cross. And the trendy, semi-theological word is cruciformity. And I want to challenge you to be a people and pray that we would be a church that is cruciform. And what does that mean? Well, it's simpler than it sounds. The cruci is crux, which is, reflects the cross, and formed. We are people who are not only believing and benefiting from the cross, but we are formed by the cross. And that has a couple of different implications. In its most simple terms, we are reminded by the shape of the cross or the way that we are to live. In the old traditions of those who would embrace this idea of cruciformity, they just remember as Christ was standing on the cross and saying the cross, the shape of the cross reminds us this. First and foremost, we live vertically in our relationship with God. We're looking up and we're relating to God on a consistent basis. 
and yet we also on a horizontal plane. We are living in relationship and are here to bless everyone who is around us. Whether that's everyone that's in the church or Christian community where we live, our neighbors, whether they are believers or not, the peoples of the nations, that the cross points us both upwards and outward and to be cruciform, to be shaped by the cross, leads us both into worship and to service and to mission for the glory of God and the benefit of the people. We are people that are experiencing cruciformity when we find our joy and our delight in the glory of God and other people's prosperity. This is the way that God has called us to live. This is the way that Christ lived for us. Cruciformity also is a reminder of what the cross has done and what the cross is doing. That by faith and repentance, we die to ourselves and we claim what Christ has done for us. We are constantly renewed in that message and we find our identity and our hope in what Jesus Christ has accomplished on the cross. And so my hope and prayer for us in 2022 is that we would be a people who are formed by the cross, focused on the cross, who glory and delight in the cross, who boast in the cross as the apostle did. Perhaps remembering this, that Jesus says, if anybody wants to be my disciple, let him or her take up his cross and follow me. May we be a people, may this be a church where that is true. Father, we give thanks to you and we bless you for Paul's message, the reminder that our faith is rooted not in us, but in what Christ has done for us, what you have done for us in him. May we not lose sight of that as we go about our business, even as the apostle said, circumcision, uncircumcision. It's not about what we do. First and foremost, it's about what you have done and what you were doing in us and what you will do through us. May we die to our agendas. May we die to anything that is getting in the way of what you would do in us. That you may be glorified and honored and all who are around us will be blessed. We pray in Christ and for his sake. Amen.